0: The Exton Moss Experiment Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss Hello everyone and welcome to The Exton Moss Experiment I'm Ken Moss I'm Simon Exton. And unfortunately, we're starting on a bit of a sad note tonight because a couple of days ago, we lost Stuart Damon, better known to a lot of television fans as Craig Sterling out of The Champions, the 1960s ITC series. Now, we have recorded an episode on The Champions, which was due to go out later this month, and we've pulled it forward. Simon, I know that this has hit you a little bit harder than most celebrity deaths that we have because it's quite uh, nostalgic for you.
1: Yes, um... The Champions is my very earliest TV memory. It, it's an ITC show, classic setup of Two Fellas and a Girl. I absolutely love it. I can watch any of the episodes over and over and over again, and it's a real happy place television. Stuart Damon is extremely easy on the eye, and that was a, uh, quite a chunk of a certain realisation a number of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: having seen Twitter over the past 24 hours, I don't think you're alone in that. I'm mean, putting it
1: a little more bluntly. Almost first crush was Stuart Damon. No, actually, to be fair, almost first crush was Craig Sterling. Because I've seen him in in other things and it's it's not quite Craig.
0: Well, that's true of quite a few characters, actually. Uh, I've got quite a crush on Clara Oswald in Doctor Who, but I've seen Jenna Coleman in other things, and she's not quite doing it for me. So you I don't do think there's an element of character in there. I mean, he had a very long career. He did quite a few things, didn't he? Didn't he have a music career at one point as well?
1: Um, he did, and I've 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 heard a couple of the songs that he sings, and I mean they they are very definitely of their time, but he, he's got a good solid voice. He started off on Broadway and then his first big film role was in the Rodgers and Hammerstein version of Cinderella opposite Leslie Ann Warren. He'd also been in uh, the revival of The Boys from Syracuse and they're they're both singing roles. So he he had the singing chops to be able to uh, manage that. He was on the cast albums of, uh, of both of those musicals. After that, he moved to England in the 60s, where he was cast in The Champions. What I hadn't realised until I was reading up today is that he appeared in an episode of The Saint, which has later been credited as the inspiration for The Persuaders, with his role being taken on by Tony Curtis. He was also cast as a regular character in the Gene Barry series The Adventurer, and the star of the show wanted him kicked off because there was such a difference in height. Stuart Damon was well over six foot if you if you look at the publicity photos of of the champions and you watch the champions there is very clearly a a big height difference between him and the other two two leads
0: because there was quite a surprise not long ago when we were in fact I think it was when we were recording for the champions I didn't realize that William Gaunt is still alive and he's the last one of the champions left now sadly so Outside of geekiness, and I appreciate that with that we are
1: playing to our strengths, <laughs> but he is best known as a soap actor and he played Dr. Alan Quatermain on General Hospital for about 30 years, won a number of soap awards for it and was nominated for lots and lots and lots. And was such a popular, popular character, they brought him back on a number of occasions as ghosts and hallucinations.
0: Hmm, <laughs> that's never been done in a soap. Well, certainly since. Oh, I mean, that would have been post-Bobby Ewing. But I know they've done it in Neighbours. I think they've even done it in Coronation Street. They've actually they've done it in EastEnders as well. So yeah, I don't know which was the first soap to do that. Dark Shadows, probably. Yeah, we must come on to Dark Shadows at some point. The premise for that sounds fascinating. Oh, it's fascinatingly awful. But putting that to one side, should we hand over to our younger selves? Because we were joined by a third for this one. We are. We are joined mm-hmm. by the
1: ever-lovely Heather from the RetroTube podcast.
0: Now, this was only recorded a couple of months ago, and it was, as I say, mm-hmm. due for release anytime soon. It's just been brought forward a little sooner than... We would have of... hoped. So, no... without further introduction, it's the Extermos experiment with Heather, the The Champions. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss.
1: I'm Simon Exton. And we're joined today by... The woman who called Avon the most extra man in
0: space.
2: <laughs> That's me, I did.
0: And you're not wrong.
2: I'm not wrong. He really is.
0: <laughs> welcome aboard, Heather.
2: Thank you very, very much.
0: Is Blake7 something you've, you've come to, or have you been a fan of it?
2: No, it's uh, it's something I've come to. Um, I do a podcast called RetroTube with my best friend, Adam and uh, he is a massive, massive Blake 7 fan, but I don't know very much about the world of television outside of the 1960s, really. So he introduced me to it for one of our episodes. The format is basically one of us chooses a show that we like and the other one doesn't know or hasn't seen since they were little. Then we'll watch watch it and talk about it. So I had no real knowledge of Blake 7 and watched it and, and fell in love with it because it was just so, so ridiculous. And I mean that with love, obviously, but it really was ridiculous.
0: <laughs> in fairness, I think a lot of Blake Seven fans would probably agree with you, just in the same way that Doctor Who fans would, if that was the diagnosis given to Doctor Who, because it's true, really.
2: It, it, it is,
0: and ridiculous is entertaining. It is. But before we start, there's a very, very important step that we always take on Ame. It's the tonic screwdriver. <laughs> Now, we've all got the lid off Tanqueray gin today. This is a uh, very popular gin. It's been around a long time. It's 43.1%, and the info bollocks tells us nothing, because there isn't any. It's distilled four times and made from the world's finest botanicals. The end. Uh, well, if you've not heard of Tanqueray and you like gin, I don't know what planet you've been on. Where have you been? Exactly. But what we usually do at this point is... Uh, stick our nose in the glass and sample the bouquet. What do we think?
2: It definitely smells like gin. It does
1: smell like gin. Mm.
0: So we're all agreed it's gin then? Yes. Eyes down, dive in. What do we think of the taste?
2: Do you know what? It tastes like gin too.
1: It does taste like gin. It Mm. tastes like a very nice, smooth gin.
2: It does. It does. You wouldn't really know that it was quite as strong as it is. She's a little bit on the dangerous side, but I'm I'm here for it.
0: Well, this is one of our go-to gins. Simon, I know that you, you've used it for many things apart from just drinking. You put it in... Have you not, do you not use it for cocktails and martinis and things? As well, you still thing? drink those. Yes, I know. that. I do. He's, he's on one now. He's got his oh, audience. Well, like, I, I thought you were about to talk about some cookery thing, and I, I don't use gin an awful lot in cookery. But yes, Tanqueray makes a lovely, lovely martini. Generally speaking, I'm not overly excited by what we class as standard gins, but this is absolutely beautiful. I'm going to give it five out of five, Bernard.
2: Wow. Praise indeed. I think I I think I will too, because you can, it's a classic, and you can't go wrong with a classic. That's why it's a classic, and I've said classic too many times now.
1: It does exactly what it says on the tin, and it does it very, very well. I'm going to join you on a five.
2: Oh, so we're all happy.
0: We're all very happy.
2: And with Fantastic.
0: that, it's time to descend into the under-gallery underneath Podcasting House. We're not opening up the Black Archive today. We're opening up the gift shop. <laughs>
3: sunshine, lollipops and rainbows, everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together
0: Here we are it's part of the Imaginarium because we have a guest with us uh, Heather, would you like to go first? What would you like to be out there?
1: It's what exists but you would like to make, be made commercially available.
2: Ready, steady, go 100%. It is out there Dave Clark has it, he has all of the episodes and the fact that It's not been released. I am forever bitter. Just so forever bitter. There is all that, all that who footage I haven't seen, all all the small faces things, and ugh.
0: Just for the benefit of those of us, because I've got to admit I don't know what it is, what is Ready Steady Go?
2: Ready Steady Go was, it was the show of the early, early mid 60s, so say around 64, 66. It was sort of ITV's answer to Top of the Pops, and it was the thing that was. Um, more popular among the, the mod crowd, they would watch Ready, Steady, Go and then go out dancing for the weekend. And it was presented by Kathy McGowan and a host of chaps. It had everybody you know the kids at the time wanted to see. It was it was it was mostly a music show, but they had little segments of skits and whatnot. Not sort of to the quality of say the Smothers Brothers show in America, but that kind of thing. As I say, it ran for I think two, just on two years, and it was it was basically just a bit of a riot. The show does does exist. The master tapes are still available, but they've not been released, and oh, it hurts my heart so badly.
0: I think that's a fairly impassioned plea.
2: Yeah, come on, Dave Clark, stop being an arse.
0: <laughs> well, Dave Clark, whoever you are, get your arse in gear. He was you? the drummer
2: in the Dave Clark Five, <laughs> in, uh, group of the nineteen sixties. so, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Sp- I always feel like everybody knows knows exactly the same things as I do because I don't feel like I know anything.
0: It's <laughs> he, quite all right. Um, we probably suffer from the same malaise, if, if truth be told. Doctor Exton, what do you fancy?
1: Well, I'm going to stick with the 1960s. I'm going to go with a fully existing ITV kids science fiction drama serial called Object Z. Now, I've seen. I've, I've got hold of a ropey copy of the first episode of it with the. The big star of Trevor Bannister and it's all about an interplanetary object that is seen heading towards the earth and the response of the military and politicians and scientists to this object that's going to hit the earth and flatten it. It was very well regarded My old boss when I was when I was a chemist who largely mirrored my taste in ancient television raved about this from when he was a kid and for that, if no other reason I would love to see this and it exists so in theory at some point I could
0: Well I am going to pick something uh, slightly more mainstream it's the remaining episodes of Spitting Image, now quite a lot of them have been released on DVD but Some of the later ones from the early 90s to the end of the original run have never been released. I can only assume because they didn't do very well commercially. It was Network that put them out there. Um, But if even they couldn't make them sell, then what would make them worth their money? It must have been seriously low sales. But I, I really, really love Spitting Image. It was a satirical puppet show from the 80s and 90s, recently revived in 2020, And I've got to say, it was pretty good actually. Uh, It was was worthy of the original. So yeah, that's my choice from the gift shop.
2: I think we've all done quite well for ourselves at the gift shop.
0: We've come away with bagfuls of goodies. And uh, that's that's all you can ask from any gift shop. Quite, quite. So here we are back in the viewing room and it's time for the champions.
1: It was a, an ITC spy drama from the late 60s. Three international agents working for an organisation called Nemesis during the first episode of the show gain almost superhuman powers actually in some cases actually superhuman powers and then they go and fight crime with these powers and occasionally do a bit of (laughs) pickpocketing It's an incredibly entertaining pro- programme. It's actually my first ever television memory from when I was a tiny wee kid in the 70s and being sat in front of the champions, well, I think of my folks passed out because they worked <laughs> worked so hard, I still love it. Uh, it is a real comfort blanket of archive television. It looks so 60s it hurts. Very well regarded in fan circles. It even managed a fairly mainstream spoof spin-off 30-odd years later called The Preventers. Television, that's the key. Someone somewhere is using television to brainwash the population of this country. Look around you. Everything has reverted to exactly how it was in the 1960s. 60s clothes, 60s cars, 60s music. We're not sure how this is being done, or why, or where, or by whom. All we know is it must be prevented. We have remained unaffected, and we have a plan. Take three ordinary citizens, create an elite team of international troubleshooters, the Preventers. I don't know if you've managed to see that.
2: I watched it the other day, it was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, they even managed to get William Gaunt in on that, so I thought that was uh, an even nicer nod, the original champions. Um,
1: and not just the champions, because there was Mrons and all sorts of things in it.
2: Oh, yeah. The, the, the Mysterons voicemail thing absolutely killed me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My Nana was into all that ITC stuff, the Baron, the Saint, uh, the Persuaders. So that's my first introduction to it. I remember scant bits of it, but it's only since we've started doing Exton Moss that I've really watched any, And they're all pretty bloody good. Mm, uh, well, they're entertaining. They, there's never been there, one that the, you...
1: There's the Gilded Cage.
2: Oh, I hate that episode. It's
1: problematic God.
0: to a modern audience. <laughs> now, you two have yes, no. got the edge on me here. Heather, I take it that you know the champions quite well.
2: I Yeah, I do. Um, I've I've not known it sort of all my life, but I did. I caught the end of um, an episode called The Nutcracker about eight years ago-ish and uh, just fell in love with it instantly. And my sister, at the time I lived with her, um, she walked into the room as I was watching it and she was like, ah, yes, this is exactly the kind of crap that you would watch. And I was like, yes, it is. Yes. Um, That was it. That was it. Just absolutely head over heels in love with it from pretty much the instant I saw it. I have watched all of the episodes way more than I should have done, possibly. I do know giant chunks of dialogue, which is a little worrying. No, if, yeah, you, if you love know, something, know, fill your boots with it. That's a really good philosophy. I'm going to take that. I mean, there are, like you say, there are some episodes that are better than others. I mean, aside from The Gilded Cage, my my least favourite, despite the inclusion of the best-named character ever, is Desert Journey, which includes a character called Major Tawat.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: He has his name on his briefcase. I mean, why would you have a briefcase with major twat on it? Um, so,
1: for exactly this reaction. <laughs>
2: I like to think that households across the country in, like, 1967 when it was first shown were equal parts horrified that the word twat was on their screen and delighted that the word twat was on their screen. Aside from the great character name, that's basically the highlight of the whole episode. Uh, nothing nothing really happens. Craig and Sharon are in the desert. They go on a journey. That's it.
1: Yeah, happening is kind of similar, but with Richard.
2: Yeah, Uh, I mean, I really like happening um, just because it's just pretty much 50 minutes of Richard Barrack. So, uh, you know, works for me. But, uh, yeah, not not a lot happens in that either.
0: So what are we watching first? We're going to watch the pilot episode. Seems a very good place to start. Well, Um, without further ado, Ron VT.
3: Before you go back to your own world, you will discover what has really happened to you here the changes that have been made in you and your friends. Changes? What changes? You must have realized already that there is some difference in you, even though you're not quite sure what the difference is. Our treatment did more than mend your bodies. It improved them. It transformed the efficiency of your minds and senses. You have unbelievable strength. You have the power to see and hear far more than you can imagine. There has been a sharpening of your reason and of all your faculties. You look doubtful, but you will come to realize the truth of what I'm telling you. But remember, these talents are not automatic. You must learn to use them just as children learn to use theirs. Moreover, you are not infallible. You will make mistakes. In fact, you are still human. Superhuman, perhaps, but not infallible and not immortal.
0: Right, so that was the very first episode of The Champions, and it shows how the three leads get their powers. Simon, this is where you usually come in and give us a pricey of the episode.
1: Which I can do, or Heather, as guest, if
0: you would prefer to. Oh, if you would like to, yes, with pleasure.
2: Oh, I don't mind. Sharon, Craig and Richard are on a mission in China, and they are all wearing dark clothes, but they're carrying a very shiny case, which makes them slightly more noticeable than it should have. And they go in and they steal some maggots from a Chinese facility. They do almost escape they they have a conveniently located truck thing that they drive to a plane which is also conveniently located and they are flying off everything's fine, but then the soldiers shoot the plane they hit the plane, and the plane takes about twenty minutes to crash. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they manage to find time for a bit of a heart-to-heart between Richard and Sharon, and Craig manages to be a bit sarcastic and, and New Yorky. And Sharon has to minutes. redo her
1: makeup. This is clearly Seven essential times. while they're about to crash.
2: <laughs> hey, listen, if you're going to die, you've got to look good doing it. The plane crashes. Everything looks like it's going to end terribly. But then a little old man in a very long robe and socks and sandals turns up, takes hold of Craig... And the next thing there's a lot of flashing lights and it turns out that this little old man and his pals have given them all superpowers and they use them to get out of their awful situation because they're stranded halfway up a mountain in the Himalayas with only like light coats to keep them warm. They're being followed by Chinese soldiers who have remembered to bring a radio but not remembered to bring climbing equipment but this doesn't matter. And it's all all alright in the end because they jump up on big rocks and they throw boulders at people and then they somehow manage to find their way home. That's what happens.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is a little bit plot light, but uh, as an opening episode, you don't want the explanation of how they got all the powers to be eclipsed by the greatest story ever written, but it is entertaining.
2: Yes.
1: And actually, there's a a special edition of this episode that was um, made at the request of the Australians Because they wanted to show the episode last, there was the whole build-up, and then the last episode is the big dramatic, this is how the champions got their powers. So there are a couple of extra scenes at the beginning where they, the three of them are in Tremaine's office, they make a recording of what actually happened in Tibet, and this is how we got our powers. At the very end, it's, oh well, we've recorded it, and we might give it to him at some point. Whereas in the real episode... Tremaine basically calls them out on their bullshit and says, this doesn't make sen- sense, to tell-, tell me what happens. And they all look sheepish and go, tee hee hee, we might do it at some point. At which point, if there were real secret agents, it would be, you're keeping secrets from your boss out the fucking door. But I think reality is something that we don't really need to
0: inject into the champions because it would just ruin the magic. It really would. As a start, what did you think of that episode itself, Heather?
2: I'd seen a few episodes before I saw the beginning. And um, I liked the way that it explained so well what had happened to them. (laughs) It's just a lot of fun. So if it is the first episode that you see, it's definitely one that's going to drag you in and keep you there for the remaining 29 episodes or however many there are. I wish that we'd have got a little bit more of Sharon being useful because it did seem that in the pilot her character was very much girl.
3: (laughs) Um, There's a
2: moment where... Craig even says to her, me and Richard are going to sort all of this out. You just keep your pretty head down. And she doesn't say, she doesn't tell them to feck off or anything like that, (laughs) which baffles me. I mean, I'm Scouse. I would not take that. But she did.
1: Uh, She's from Hove. They're more genteel.
2: Yes, apparently so. Uh, what I would
1: say about, um, in, in slight defense of that is that while they're in the, the plane and about to crash and in the heart to heart with Sharon and Richard, it is pointed out that she's there because she's a doctor and a bacteriologist and she's not an agent and she didn't, she did a lot of soul searching about whether to come along on the mission or not. So when it comes to action-y type stuff, it's, it's not acceptable for Craig to say keep your pretty head down, but then that's not the least acceptable thing that he does during the course of the, the stories. That's true. <laughs> but it's not unreasonable to say we are trained agents and we know how to do this shit. You don't. You're there to look after the bugs. Hide and do bug things, and we will sort out the bad guys. I don't see that as a as an unreasonable thing. That's a we're trained to do this, and you're not.
2: Mm. Yeah, actually, now now you've made that point, it does make a bit more sense. But I would have really, really liked for Craig to have actually said, "You just stay there and do bug things." I think that would have been a much better line.
1: What I would say about that conversation with Sharon is that there's this whole big backstory about how she's a doctor and she's done all these specialist courses as a way of hiding from the trauma of her being a a young widow, which is never referenced again in the entire series. She just said, some people can talk about it. I can't. End of. Never mentioned again. No. Even when in later episodes, she is being sent out in pulling gear to chat people up. There's still never any any mention of, oh, I can't can't form any, any attachments. She does get to do doctory things every so often.
2: She does. And even though she she is a doctor and that's never made a secret of, she's always referred to as Miss McCready. And she's a little irritating.
1: But that's kind of female doctors across the 60s.
2: Yeah, maybe so.
0: You made pointed reference of that when watched Doctor Who, the Time Monster, that the master referred to Ruth as Doctor. Yeah, who- and it stands out because it's unusual. Yes. But the uh, the pilot episode is in itself quite flat. There's, it's it's very much there as a setup episode, but it does the job of reeling you in. They have a contact
1: at um, who's one of the uh, the Chinese workers at the research base that they go to that they actually make no contact with whatsoever, and he's an incredibly rubbish agent because. He gives himself away at the first opportunity. He's he's not a soldier, but when they're escaping, he grabs one of the soldier's guns and jumps in the truck. So he's there in his office uniform, firing a gun, and not unreasonably, the bloke who's in charge just says, well, what the hell are you doing here? For some reason, after having cast suspicion on this bloke, he is then allowed enough time to be able to send a report back to Nemesis before he's beaten up and shot.
2: Yeah, I also noticed that um, when it looked as though Craig, Richard and Sherrod were getting away unscathed, he had a beam on his face that could, you know, drown out the moon. And he was so made up by the fact that, you know, his pals were getting away, even though we didn't see him interact with them in any way, shape or form. And Bert Quauk was like, what are you you smiling at? (laughs) What are you so happy about? They're getting away. Um. Uh, yeah, he uh, He was a terrible, terrible agent. No wonder he got shot quite quickly, is, is what I'm saying. And then
1: when they're about to crash, Richard and Sharon sort of go and put themselves on the on the floor at the back of the plane. And then once they've crashed, Sharon has magically
0: teleported herself into a chair. She sat in the brace position behind a chair when the plane's split in half and they're all exposed to the four winds on the Himalayas. She's, uh, yeah... Propped up daintily, and well, slouching a little, but still, Sharon McCready. She's the most immaculate woman ever committed to film. Never a hair she out of place. Is.
2: She's amazing. I can only, I can only ever aspire to that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> and
2: apparently, Alexandra Bastido did her own hair and makeup so that she could get an extra fifteen minutes in bed, and she didn't have to be at the studio so early. And I think that makes it even better.
1: And the other thing is, she came from a very multicultural family and was fluent in, I think, about five or six European languages. And so, as a result of that, worked as a, um, an interpreter for 10 Downing Street. Wow. And, going on to the 1980s, as a presenter for Miss World, which is possibly slightly less
0: of an accolade. Is Miss World still a thing? I have no idea. Are there any more notes? I would, I would hate to... Uh... Oh, yeah, just Himalayan bloke look like a creepy Santa
1: he did and again didn't make an awful lot of sense because his whole heart-to-heart conversation with with Richard um, we're going to trust you to go away because knowing what you know nobody is going to want to come back which is a load of bollocks we're sending you away with superpowers
2: oh well you see I I do watch a lot of superhero films and I read quite a lot of comics and I do know that one of the one of the main rules of being a superhero is that you can't tell anyone
0: except they all Um, do (laughs)
2: Yeah, but the champions are really good because they're also spies, so they're good at not telling people things.
1: Except they're kind of not. I'm going to come onto this later. Well, on. to be fair, <laughs> the the only other thing that I've got written down is that there was low the, the mountain sets were really looked really good. Oh, they did. Um, to be fair, yeah. They, and they yeah. The,
0: the Himalayan footage looked really good. It did. See, I, I've taken the piss a little bit about the. The fact that the stock footage frequently doesn't match, even within the episode. There's one that we've seen in the past where the name of the hotel changed about three times. Yeah, Shadow of the Panther. Yeah, and (laughs) the use of stock footage of foreign places and and exotic locations and and the stock footage they use, the way it's spliced into and the way they shoot it to make it marry in, I honestly do think it gives it uh, that bit of the word? Class, I suppose. I mean, in the 60s, this must have looked pretty good. It still looks quite good now. I know you, there's a, a bit of a leap of imagination, but it's not terrible. It does... You do believe that they are in the places that they're the stock footage is, is shown.
2: Yeah, definitely. And Mon- Monty Berman was the one who shot all of the stock footage. It was all from his sort of home videos of when he was on holiday in various places, like south of France and stuff. Um, he specifically took footage like that while he was away on holiday, simply so he could splice it into various episodes of various things, <laughs> which, I mean, was very, very dedicated. But also, I think really, really far you know, thinking because... Not with the episode that we're coming up to so much, because there's there's so much stock footage, but there's an episode of Randall and Hopkirk called The Ghost Who Broke the Bank of Monte Carlo, and they use quite a lot of, a lot of stock footage in that. It genuinely took me years to realise <laughs> that nobody had left the studio in, e- <laughs> in E-Link. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, my, my suspension of disbelief is seriously, seriously low, but still... It was it was done really really well. I don't think there were many other studios at the time who were using that kind of technique.
1: But a chunk of that was because that's how he got his holidays as work expenses. <laughs> I think he also bought up a lot of old stock footage at, I don't know bringing by sales or something wherever you wherever you buy stock footage from but as I said he he had this whole raft of stuff that he could just build episodes around and particularly department s champions as well but particularly department s it's very obvious there are there are certain episodes that are just built around oh, we've got stock footage and we've got We've got a plane set,
0: so we must have about eight episodes set on planes. But I do genuinely think it looks good. Oh, it looks fantastic. But moving on, what is next on the list? The next episode
1: is Reply Box number 666.
3: What can I do for you, sir? Bongo drums? No. I got a parrot that speaks Greek. He mighty Herosanthropos. You Greek, huh? Well, I wasn't Chinese. I was born in Piraeus. My mother was Greek, my father was... Colored sailor. I sometimes get uh, homesick for the mother tongue. This <laughs> parrot, what do you say? You may know color for thee. Hey, your Greek's pretty good. This bird. When can I see him?
0: Eva, would you care to tell us what we've just watched?
2: We've watched some stuff. <laughs> watched some stuff. <laughs> this is possibly an episode that would not be filmed today is, is is kind of how I feel about it it's a very weird episode it's not it wasn't even until I last watched it this morning while I was making notes that I realized why they <laughs> they were in there anyway and i've I've seen this episode at least 10 times basically a plane crashes in Jamaica somewhere on a little island the bad guys want to find it because there's something important in there. We don't find out that there's a plane that they're looking for or even that there's anything in the plane until probably the last two or three minutes of the show. So up until then, the episode is basically Craig being thrown out of a plane and disappearing, Sharon seducing Anton Rogers with his very wonky moustache and very, very alo-alo accent, and uh, Richard is there too. That's pretty much what happens, and then at the at the end, Craig gets gets rescued by a chap named Clive, who for some reason isn't wearing a shirt, but had a That's triangular bandage with him. He did have a triangular bandage. <laughs> no, maybe that was his shirt.
1: But it it was the proper thing. You can't
2: thing. have everything. <laughs> I thought you just said that you can't have everything being you know too believable because it's the champions.
1: But if you go, if you're going to carry a triangular bandage particularly if you're going to carry a triangular bandage in preference to say a shirt which arguably is more (laughs) useful on a deserted island um, you would at least know how to tie it properly
2: anyway it turns out that the the thing that was in the plane was an anti-radar device so that it would render a plane invisible and that would be terrible if it got into the hands of the bad guys and then it all finishes with two very very bad jokes roll credits that's it that's the show
1: I mean, one of the his own things that Clive was doing was spending three hours wandering through a, a jungle with a harpoon with two dead fish on it. They must have been rank by the time he got up the top of that mountain.
0: He does actually, at one point, wave them in Craig's face and he pushes them away. And they are practical fish. They are not props. So his left hand must have stunk for the rest of that scene.
1: Oh. And he didn't, have a, didn't even have a shirt to wipe it on. <laughs>
0: Come on, open the notebook. What have you got for us?
1: Right, so, right at the start, the foreign agent that gets killed that triggers this whole thing off looks in the local newspaper, finds an advert that says um, wanted parrot that speaks Greek, reply box 666, and uh, he turns the sixes into eights. But each take that that advert is shown in
0: the newspaper has a different set of other adverts around it. Oh, it does, yes, because it's um, it's very, very clearly...
1: I know I I rewound through all of this to check.
0: <laughs> it's not often actually you do a freeze frame. Hang on a minute. But you were spot on with this. Yeah, the uh, I think it demonstrates how many takes it took to rip it out of the paper and <laughs> how many papers they went through because uh, yeah the the advert does change several times between shots.
2: Magic paper.
0: While
1: while he's doing this, there's a woman who turns up in his hotel room that I first thought was going to be some kind of agent contact because their conversation is very confrontational and then suddenly they're snogging their face off and she's refusing to give her name and all that sort of thing and i thought well okay second thought positive progressive attitude to sex work um and then random bloke kicks the door down and kills him none of that really made a great deal of sense
2: it's just your average sixty show
1: gift shop owner dreadful
0: blackface <clears throat> well it's not really blackface is it it's just heavy tan I don't think he's supposed to be No, bl-
2: he's meant to be mixed race because he did say to Craig that his mother was Greek and his father was, and I am quoting verbatim, I am not using this term on my own. <laughs> the quote is, my father was a coloured sailor, so he is meant to be mixed race.
1: Yeah, but the, the blackface that he's, he's wearing is dr- or heavy tan. It's, it's
2: horrific. It's
0: dreadful. And there, there's a great tide mark at his hairline. I <laughs> It was been applied by Homer Simpson's makeup gum.
2: It's true. Oh no! I, 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 lost I didn't, think, I didn't think I'd lose it on this. I was being so good. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm good. Fine. Let's go.
1: So, so now we move on to Sharon's seduction, and specifically Sharon's pulling dress. Oh, my God. Which, again, positive progressive attitude to
0: sex work slash she's good friends with some drag queens. What is that blue pom-pom, well, tinsel that's around the bottom or whatever the hell it is? Marabou feather. I'll take your word for it. You know, Heather, we do this every, every episode. Drag queens. Mm. I just cannot get my head around what a drag queen. And
1: for some reason, she has Danny LaRue's prop box with her. Because that's the only explanation—the only explanation for that jewelry.
2: Does he know?
1: And she picks one of the one of the subtler ones,
0: which still covers a half her hand. The, there's a blue one <laughs> in there that would have gone with her dress, and she picks the yellow topaz thing. I think it's wishful thinking that, that that's topaz, that's paste. <laughs> Surely Sharon McCready wouldn't have paste—the most immaculate woman ever committed to film.
2: That's a fact.
0: Uh, but she <laughs> no. is she is in character as a slapper at that point. And Anton Rodgers, I know it was a few years previous, but another time where Anton Rodgers pulling well above his weight.
2: Well above his weight. This is the least believable thing that happens in the Champions. That's all I'm saying.
0: What a shower of bitches we are.
2: (laughs) I know, isn't it lovely?
1: I think one of the least believable things that happens in The Champions is when either Craig or Richard starts hitting on a woman because they spend, half, they spend most episodes going on holiday together.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> they're just a friendly bunch of chaps.
1: Well, they're not because Sharon goes on holiday on her own. Richard and, and Craig go on holiday together. <laughs> So it's not the, it's not Happy <laughs> Smiley Trio on on Fun and Japes somewhere no, else. No, sorry, it's, Sharon,
2: you can't come with us here, no. This
1: is special man <laughs> stuff we must do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, they probably are doing a lot of special man stuff, to be fair.
0: <laughs> Maybe it's because they've both tried pulling Sharon so many times and been knocked back. They've decided that... If they can't get platinum, they're not going to settle for gold or silver. And they've just decided men are the only way from here.
2: Yes, that's it. They'll just go water skiing in Miami together and keep the photos in their wallets for unknown reasons.
0: Exactly.
1: I know that's an episode we're going to come on to. But the the thing that they recall is, oh, have you got that photo of the time we went water skiing together? <laughs> Yes, I have, but I don't really want you looking through all the other photos. I don't really want you showing other people all the other photos of us that have got my wallet. I had
0: to go to the special developers for those. Are you trying to suggest that creepy Santa up a mountain in the Himalayas gave them super homosexual powers that they'd hitherto been unaware of?
2: Um, well,
1: I—I I, so. I
0: wasn't actually because I don't—I
1: <laughs> didn't imagine they'd be uh, been unaware of them beforehand.
2: In the beginning episode, there is there is a commentary by all three champions, and in it, William Gaunt and Stuart Damon realize quite early on that there's an awful lot of sexual tension between Richard and Craig. And in the end, Alexandra Bastido says, "Oh, I feel very much like a third wheel." <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because um, uh, The Night People, which is one of my favourite episodes, is all about Sharon being on her own on holiday. And at the same time, <laughs> Craig and Richard are on the other side of the planet on holiday. Yes,
2: together. on holiday in the same room. Mm. And then they also share a room when they get to the hotel that Sharon's staying in. Because of course they do.
1: Why would you not? Perhaps there was only one room left with all the
0: brainwashed people in it.
2: I haven't thought of that. <laughs>
0: Um, Dragging us back right. from turning what? one ITC character at a time into a gay. What have we got next on the oh, list? No, no, no,
2: I haven't, I haven't got the.
1: I my know notes you yet.
0: haven't. I know. What's next on your your critique? The speedboat.
2: <laughs> oh, the speedboat! And you know where I'm
1: going with the speedboat. I do. Lo- lots of lovely establishing um, stock footage shot of mangrove swamps, but the way they realise this in the studio is. Richard and and Sharon behind a window that is being smacked with palm trees and having water chucked at it. And the palm trees look look kind of less like palm trees and more like one of those rotating things in a car wash. You had to use your imagination for that, but we we can be forgiving because of the rest of it. The final note that I've got is right at the very end, when Anton Rogers is knocked out, he does this amazing flying leap across half of the studio. Oh, he does.
0: That's the best punch in the world. One punch and he goes about 20 yards. But not, not just backwards, up and over and backwards. That That is one hell of a punch. That's Street Fighter 2 worthy.
2: Yes, it was spectacular. And then after he'd done this dramatic fall, Cray just stepped over him. As he was walking towards Richard, and then that was it—the end. They, they had, there was banter.
0: The one thing they don't do with the banter, which I was expect—I expect every time, and thankfully it never happens—is that they're in the office. They're debriefing. They all give some completely implausible explanation or cryptic reason as to how they've escaped from this terrible situation. They all three, as one, turn back towards the boss. But they resist the temptation. They know the end credits are coming, but they all resist the temptation to laugh, which was standard episode ending in those days. Police squad style.
1: Star Trek style, because there's always a crap joke in <laughs> Star Trek. No matter how many people have died horribly during the episode, they make some shite joke that they all fall about laughing at.
0: Yeah, somewhere in the in the tea room, there's a chalkboard with... Uh, uh, five bar gate chalk marks on it as to how many red shirts have died that week on away missions what are we what are we watching now? which episode are we watching next
1: right well we started off watching the first transmitted episode we're going to now watch the last transmitted episode which is auto kill
3: george is dead and remains dying do you think that he'd give up that he'd sit back and call it a death for one of us
1: okay Let's do it the way Tremaine would have.
3: And he'd go by the book. Yes, he'd examine everything we've got to date. Looking for anomalies? Loopholes? Inconsistencies. Let's start with Braiding first. Now, I've been all over those files again.
1: Yes, all right. You find anything new? Well, nothing that adds up to anything. Sharon, you spoke to Braiding's wife about the morning that he disappeared, yes?
3: That's right. It was a perfectly normal day. Except he'd lost his briefcase. Mm? George. He'd lost his briefcase the day before.
1: And he found it again. The mechanic mentioned George said he'd lost his briefcase, found it again. <sighs> okay, that leaves us with the medical report. It's a brand new drug, hallucinatory
2: the briefcase. Autokill is my favourite episode. I'm putting out there right now. I love this one so much. This episode has got Jerry from The Good Life as a fake policeman with OCD and he is in a car with a random chap who doesn't say much in fact he doesn't say anything I genuinely don't know his character name in this episode I just always call him Jerry so we're just going to have to deal with that right now Jerry's made up that he's in Switzerland because it's so clean he keeps chatting to this man who doesn't chat back he drops him back off at Nemesis headquarters because it's a secret organisation so obviously they've got the name on the front of the building for everybody to see it And the car park. I mean, it's the worst-kept secret in Geneva. George goes in, the chap that hasn't said much, and uh, he walks past Tremaine's office, which makes Tremaine really happy because clearly he's not seen him in a while. And he wanders along until he gets to somebody else's office. A guy comes out and he's like, oh, George, it's great to see you. And George just, you know, shoots him. Because obviously we discover that the champions must be quite bad at investigation because Tremaine has to tell them that they need to look, you know, investigate George's death. Well, not, not his death because he's not died yet. Just the his, his little brain freeze and his shooting of the random guy. Craig and Richard have a little bit of a little bit of a spat. Richard says that he's known George better than anybody else, and Craig says, "No, you've just known him longer. That's all." yeah over someone. Makes no sense. Well, Tremaine pe- reminds people them... People can
1: always be catty about their exes.
2: That is very true. Um, oh, Tremaine you could explains see Ken's face. Techniques. <laughs> and says, it's the why and the who we're after, and particularly the who. So he must be a fan. One of my favourite moments is Craig investigating at the garage, and the mechanic saying that George wanted a quick oil change, and he remembered the conversation very well. And Craig says, what did he say? He said... Pierre, that's my name, my name's Pierre I'm Pierre, I'm named after a great uncle anyway, he said to me, Pierre I'd like an oil change, which always makes me giggle (laughs) the only thing that comes up in everybody's account of what happened to George is that there's a briefcase that has gone missing and magically been returned, nobody takes any notice of this, it's just a briefcase then Tremaine decides that he's going to go out for lunch, he's going to eat at a cafe called Barbarella's, so he's clearly a big 60s sci-fi fan and Jerry from the Good Life stops him, returns his briefcase, because apparently it'd been stolen. He brought the briefcase but left the contents at section th- at Sector thirteen, police station, for some reason. Tremaine's a bit suspicious, but he goes with it. And then Tremaine disappears. When he comes back he tries to kill the doctor, who has been treating poor old George, who's still in a coma, after his little after his little blip of shooting the guy. He shoots the doctor but he misses because Craig, Sharon and Richard all leap on him. Not even exaggerating, they all just totally leap on him. And the doctor doesn't seem particularly affected by this in any way, shape or form. He just tells them that there's something fishy going on. Tremaine's been given some sort of a hallucinatory drug. Sharon explains basic medicine to Craig and how antidotes work. So we find out that we need a sample of the drug so that they can make the cure. The next thing, Richard's wallet gets stolen. Which is quite awkward because <clears throat> it's got the Miami water skiing photos in. <laughs> we don't want those getting out in public.
1: And whatever water skiing is it, code for.
2: Yes, I think we know what it's code for. It turns out that the bad guy's intention is to destroy Nemesis from the inside by making all its best agents kill each other. So that's why they've chosen Richard. Because they know. Sharon and Craig realise that something's happened to Richard because he, you know, sends little telepathic messages, and they go and find him. They go to six to thirteen, and they make a bit of a pit of a prat of themselves by insisting that Richard is definitely there because he walked in and he went through that door there, and he points to just like a plain wall. So they think that they're drunk, and they try to arrest them, but obviously it doesn't work. Richard is too badass to be brainwashed by the normal level of dose of this particular drug. So Barker has to give him extra doses because he's that badass. And uh, it might kill him, but he's a game guy. He'll go for it. They finally manage to speak to Richard. Richard tells them that his dad was a banker and he didn't have a brother. But then Barker tells him, "No, no, 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 he did have a brother. And the brother looked uncannily like Jerry from The Good Life. But he was killed. He was killed and his father was killed by Craig Sterling, who's just smirking on a photo, but apparently is the face of evil. Richard is distraught by this. It turns out that Craig has killed everybody who Richard loves. His first his first partner at work, the love of his life. Craig has got an awful lot to answer for. And poor old Craig, he's just killing himself trying to find Richard at this stage. He's not done nothing wrong in his life. Anyway, in the end, they, Craig and Sharon find Richard, He's unconscious. They have a big fight with Barker. There's quite a shocking moment where, when Barker is trying to destroy the drug, there's one there's one vial of evidence, and Craig leaps on it and puts his hands over it so that he can keep it safe. And Barker starts stamping on his hands, which was quite brutal, really, for 1967. Anyway, he beats Barker, obviously, and then Richard wakes up, and the world's biggest fight ensues... It takes Sharon and Craig an awful lot of energy to overcome Richard because, you know, he may be slight and wiry, but he's tough. He's from Yorkshire. He knows. And they beat Richard. They bring him home. They take the drug home as well. They make the antidote. Tremaine gets better. Richard gets better. Craig and Sharon go in to see Richard. Richard looks quite shocked at how beaten up Craig is. Craig says something very, very cryptic to him. Richard really doesn't care, rolls over and goes back to sleep. End credits.
0: Yes, I didn't realise that was the last episode. There were quite a few, I won't say plot plot holes, but there were quite a few instances throughout that that I thought, how champion are you here? The first one was that when William Gaunt's having his pocket picked, somewhat inelegantly by a, a colossal man, Craig hears it, but Sharon doesn't, even though they've both got the same powers. And Sharon is quite ineffective in that scene, which I thought was a bit odd, because there have been other episodes where she really has made the two men look extremely silly for their lack of ability.
1: And Craig nicks her drink back off her before she's finished it. And
0: finishes it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he has his drink and then hers. And I I don't care how well you know somebody, that's just not right. Weird. I I have a couple of notes.
0: Kel surprise.
1: I have to say... Paul Eddington's French accent is
0: variable. Shop shop demonstration, I think, is the term. He does a tour of the countries. There's even a drop of German in there at some point. The
1: bloke in uniform who first gets shot has the most exaggerated death scene imaginable. (laughs) It really is like something out of Police Squad. And he's pumped about six bullets into him, and he holds up this paper file to try and protect himself. That was unintentionally a little funny. (laughs) What I would say about the brainwashing is that Richard eventually succumbs to it, and he's only been there a few hours. Compare that to Sharon in Shadow of the Panther, where she is in the hotel for days on end and fools everybody that she's been brainwashed and she actually hasn't. Again, with that episode, she's there on her own. Craig and Richard turn up later and make a complete hash of all of the investigating and in the end she has to come and rescue them and say, for God's sake, I am pretending I have this under control.
2: Yes, yes she does.
1: The only reason she has to break character is to rescue the two of them because they make such a colossal fuck up of all of the investigating um, and, and end up with massive targets painted
0: on their backs. In fairness, Richard does get a lethal dose of the drug which would have killed anybody else. I don't think it excuses the fact that the huge photograph blow-ups that keep being turned around, he can't recognise that the people in the room turning them round are also the people on the photograph blow-ups.
1: And the fact that his brother and his first partner are obviously the same person.
2: That was a little confusing. But there again, it was meant to be hallucinogenic, so maybe he didn't make the connection of them being the same person. I don't know. My experience with hallucinogenic drugs is not that great, so I'm not sure.
1: Maybe they just didn't want to pay for another extra or stock photo or something. The fight between Richard and Craig was really quite dramatic. Richard and Sharon were obviously stunt doubles. But unless they had a really good stunt double for Stuart Damon, it kind of looks as though he did his own fight stuff. And the, the bit at the end where he knows that he has to punch Richard to, uh, to get him unconscious so that he can get him out of there safely and, and all of that, but he can't bring himself to do it. That was
0: very sweet.
2: And then when he did knock him out, he hugged him. It was very touching.
0: Yes, was. it did get mentioned by Dr. Exton. That, that was, oh, Hello. <laughs>
1: And then in the hospital room, uh, and it's sort of, oh, and Richard's all concerned, oh, what's, happen- what's happened to you? And Craig won't tell him that he's the one that's lamped nine bells out of him. Um, and Richard's just sort of, oh, well, okay, if you're not going to tell me, I'm going to roll over and go to sleep, you can tell me in the morning. There were a few bits that, with the Eye of Faith, were quite couply.
2: Yes, it was a very couplely episode.
0: Oh, you're killing the rainforest, you two.
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Look, it's not my fault that Richard and Craig love each other, right?
1: And it, I'm it's just sitting here watching the whole
2: thing unfold. Exactly.
1: But I I love those episodes. I, the Champions is a show I adore. I haven't seen those particular episodes in quite a long time. Um, it, it's been a very long time since I last saw the beginning. So thank you. It's been a real treat to catch up on those again.
2: It's been lovely. I've, I've, really, I've really, really loved watching these episodes and, and having a giggle about them with you both. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: Yeah. And actually, there, there's an extra, I, th- I think there's an extra level that you get out of the episodes when you know you're going to podcast about them, when you're going to talk about them. And you, you see little things like, oh, water skiing photos, eh? That, that's the most important thing in your wallet, I see. Or OCD geekiness, knowing that, uh, noticing that the adverts around the, the reply box 666 thing change from scene to
0: scene to scene. But, Heather, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on board. Thank you. Despite the fact that uh, we were beset with sound problems, as podcasting is, unfortunately, when you try and do a, a remote link up, it's just, I think that's just the nature of the beast. But thank you so much for coming on board. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: It has. It's been a joy to thank have you. Thank you ever
2: so much for asking. Oh, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, you you must return the compliment and come on to RetroTube at some point. That that would be lovely. We'd love to have you both.
0: Thanks so much, Heather. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with something else. And please give RetroTube a go. It is a wonderfully entertaining
1: podcast. Thank you, Heather. This has been a pleasure.
2: Thank you so, so much. Really, really appreciate it. It's been a joy.
0: The Exton-Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.